Over the last few years, I've been working mainly in the area of intellectual history, not particularly related to education or higher education, with particular reference to <coughs> the life and work of Hannah Arendt and the life, more recently, the life and work of uh, the great Rosa Luxemburg. Uh, so, for my thinking today, I went, I went back to some of my earlier thinking that was contained in a book called Towards the Virtuous University. Um, so, uh, I've kind of re resurrected uh, some of those ideas. Uh, but I just wanted to start by clarifying some of the terms, or rather the way in which I'm using some of the terms, because I've, got, I've kind of got the benefit of coming last and hearing how other people are using certain words. And I thought I just wanted to clarify how I use them. Uh, I think I share with uh, the previous contributors uh, the idea that practices carry with them certain intrinsic goods. And I think I share with some of the other speakers the idea that institutions exist as institutions to carry forward those in, the intrinsic goods of the practices relating to that institution. They are a civic association of people who share a purpose in carrying forward those um, those intrinsic goods of the particular practices in question. Uh, and insofar as they fail to do that, or distance themselves from that, they're less good as institutions, although they may be deemed to be organisationally very effective and efficient. So there may be a distinction here between institutions and organisations. Um, We've used the word policy a lot, and my paper is not about policy, it's about values. But I, I try to conceive, I do conceive of policy as process, not as a thing. I think it's important to think, of, to remind oneself that policy is a process, because at different stages in the process, the protagonists, the actors, the agents can speak back to that policy and shift it and change it. It's one of the ways in which we speak back to power. Uh, by, by modifying policy at, at different stages, at different levels in its implementation. Um, and finally, just in case I use the words, I do draw a distinction, which I took from the uh, legal philosopher who died a couple of years ago, I think, Dworkin. That's a rather simplistic distinction between morality and ethics, in that I see ethics as what we want ourselves to develop into, uh, how we want to shape our own telos, if you like. And I see morality as how we treat others. And of course, if you, if, you, if you separate those two out, you get into an awful muddle. You've got to live them together. You, in order to live a fully ethical life, it seems to me, you've also got to live a moral life and vice versa. But I think it's, it's for me, it's quite important to have that, bear that distinction in mind. Uh, so my focus is on um, is on values um, um, rather than rather than policy, uh, and in, this is on on, on some spectrum on or rather I'm right at the normative end. In fact, you know this is a bit of a sort of secular sermon, really. I'm so normative, I think, in what I've written for you. Um, I don't find values a terribly helpful word in a sense because it, 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 is, it is so fuzzy and I'm using it in a, 
in a fairly straightforward manner of, as meaning just that which we value. Um, um, I usually couch this sort of discussion more in the sort of Aristotelian language of virtuous, virtues or virtuous dispositions, that towards which we're disposed. Uh, but I'm using, uh, I'm using <coughs> the word values here. Um, my, my starting point is um, the current context of ideas, the zeitgeist, as reflected in public discourse. Um, I've been struck over the, over the last few years in the number of uh, political theorists and uh, social commentators who are sensing um, um, the demise, the passing of what we've called neoliberalism. There's quite a press of literature around, um, around some sea change, a movement that which uh, we saw no alternative to prior to 2007-2008. Uh, people are now speaking of as, um, as, as, as having been shaken at its foundations. Um, it seemed that it had survived its own catastrophe in the financial crisis of 2007 and 2008. But now things seem to be catching up. Um, one, of, one of the uh, points that Rosa Luxemburg, who was, an, who was an economist as well as an activist, uh, stressed throughout her life uh, was that when, capitali when capitalism faces a crisis, the good society won't necessarily come in and fill that society, fill the vacuum. Uh, the alternative to capitalism is, bar is barbarism, barbarity, one of her great papers, socialism or barbarity. Unless you get the alternatives for when uh, we've, we, we face the massive change in capitalism, then um, um, th th there could be very real problems. And what one begins to see pushing it a bit here, filling that vacuum, is what is generally being called populism. And again, there's quite a literature around populism. Both, uh, and I've cited this in my paper, I cited the academic stuff in my paper, but we're coming across it more and more in the, <clears throat> in the press as well, aren't we, the notions of populism. Um, and I think that's, for me and perhaps for many other people in the room, that's, that's sort of crystallises around, um, uh, around Brexit, or rather, the, or rather the debate that occurred in, uh, in the referendum here in the UK. It was crystallised definitely by the uh, election of, the, um, of Trump to the 45th presidency. Um, and I guess it crystallises around, to my mind, the extremely worrying re-emergence of the far right um, into mainstream politics uh, across Europe and to some extent uh, with the door opened slightly by Trump uh, with, um, with far right movements gaining greater cre credence um, uh, within America. So um, what are the characteristics of this thing called populism? Um, 
what claims is it implicitly making? I'd say, first of all, <clears throat> um, this thing called the will of the people trumps all the other mechanisms of democracy. Um, the will of the people is more important than the established institutions. So there is a constant claim that the will of the people, however one wants to define that, um, uh, is, is, is supremely important. The second, the second claim, which kind of builds on the first, uh, is that we can therefore, we can therefore define who the people are. The people are real people, they're decent people, they're good people, they're our people. And they're definitely distinguished from people who are not so decent, not one of us, scroungers, uh, or whatever. So, the notion of the will of the people is offset against the others. And I think the third claim is uh, the really tricky one. Um, that we've got, that truth somehow doesn't matter. There's a, it seems to me there's a big difference between um, um, me trying to pull a fast one on you by telling an absolute deliberate lie, right? Um, and you could counter that through persuasion. You could say, John, that's not the case because these are the facts that show this, that, and the other. Um, another, or, and, and, and it's what I'm talking about, nor is what I'm talking about just self-deceit. I mean, I might be deceived myself about something and try to, and, and try to persuade you of that. What we're talking about here in, pu in public discourse is public figures speaking what they know to be an untruth, what the people who are listening know is an untruth, and so there is a collusion in untruth, which has to do uh, absolutely with power and control. I tell you a lie or an untruth, you know I'm telling you a, a, a lie or an untruth, but it just doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that I'm totally exaggerating the number of people in a crowd to which I spoke to. You know that I'm telling that lie, but we're reconstructing, we're reconstructing reality together. So <clears throat> I think those are the sorts of things that are floating around in the zeitgeist and worryingly being translated into public discourse. Um, so that's, that's sort of setting, setting the scene and uh, a lot of you might want to argue with that and argue with whether or not we are seeing a shift in the zeitgeist, whether, an, you know, whether or not liberalism, neoliberalism uh, is in the beginning of its death throes and all, all the rest of it, but that's, that's where I'm coming from. <clears throat> the institutions of civic society are vitally important in setting themselves against that form of populism and the demagogues that it produces, which is precisely, of course, why demagogues um, um, uh, will have very little truck with the great civic institutions, particularly independent institutions. Look at the way in which government will treat <clears throat> uh, our independent judiciary at times, for example. Um, or look at the way in which the, um, uh, um, the White House uses some of the great, or 
uh, abuses some of the great institutions. The university is one of those great civic institutions that exists as a bulwark against that kind of demagoguery. So my question is, um, what is, what is the what's what's the specific responsibility of the university in the kind of context which I've just sketched out? How might the university uh, reassert its priorities, uh, reassert its um, uh, its it, it, its central mission in the face of the challenges, uh, the sorts of challenges I've just set out? And um, this is this is where it this is where it perhaps gets a little ceremony. But um, in the paper, I've um, I've listed what I see as four prime responsibilities of the university. <coughs> if we were to say, what are universities for uh, in a democracy? Uh, I would want to say that first of all, they they exist. To, um, uh, to distinguish between truth and fantasy, truth and wishful thinking, to sift less tenable beliefs from more tenable beliefs. That is one of the prime functions of the university within a society. To do that and to help other people to do it and to place a value on that sort of thing. This is not to say that universities know the truth or have, or have access to the truth, but they value, um, they value the process of truthfulness, of making those sorts of distinctions, as I say, between wishful thinking, um, fact, fantasy, um, what's a more or less tangible belief. Um, second, and this is going back to uh, several of the points made by previous speakers, universities are, <coughs> as the term suggests, universal. Um, um, and that does mean something very different from just international in the sense of selling themselves internationally. Um, but they are fundamentally about understanding and enabling other people to understand and recognise and respect uh, cultural difference, differences of opinion, uh, and so on and so forth. Um, thirdly, their spaces of dialogue and... Um, and disagreement. Uh, there are spaces within society where people come along in order to understand the differences and argue through the differences between uh, among themselves. Um, this is this is where I would shoot off into a, um, a um, um, into a long exploration of Gadamer's work, in a sense. Because this is, I think, where Gadamer is so good in helping us understand uh, how the university uh, is a, uh, a, a vital institution in helping us uh, explore differences and explore different disagreements. 
finally, and in a sense I think this is the most important one, and one that's easy to overlook, that the university exists to preserve a particular kind of register, a particular kind of idiom. Um, it is, it, it's the idiom that we're, we're trying to use today. Um, it's, it's questioning. It's accepting of people who are trying to think on their feet. It's accepting of people sometimes making mistakes. It's accepting of people um, uh, having sometimes to be unclear in order to move forward to greater clarification. Now, if you think about it, there aren't many bits of society that preserve that kind of register and that kind of idiom. Um, and it's that idiom which is uh, hugely at risk in the kind of managerialist cultures, I think, that, uh, that many of us operate in. So, I, I would say, in answer to the question, well, um, what are universities for? And um, where are the spaces for, edu for, edu for real education in the university? I, I, would, I would want to point to those four great um, historic duties and responsibilities <coughs> of the university within a liberal democratic society. But universities, well, institu institutions are only as good as the practice as, as the practitioners who carry forward the practices for which those for which those institutions are responsible. And that is particularly true of the university. That's obviously true of the university as well. The university is only as good as the practitioners who carry forward the goods of the practices for which the universities are responsible. Put that more specifically, they're only as good as the researchers, teachers and, uh, and scholars that uh, carry forward those practices. So I highlight, I highlight in the paper um, um, A number of values um, that I think are intrinsic to our practices. And I think they're intrinsic to the, our practices whether we see ourselves primarily as teachers, whether we see ourselves primarily as researchers, or whether we see ourselves primarily as scholars. The points I highlight here, they're, they're not just adjuncts to good practice. It seems to me they are absolutely intrinsic. I want to come back to that point in a minute, but I'll, I'll, just, I'll just go through them. Um, my first one is truthfulness as quest. I think unless we acknowledge the notion of truthfulness as quest, um, not truth as an end point that as teachers we're imparting, or scholars getting at, or whatever, but truthfulness as a process. If we couldn't, if we had a total disregard for that, then it, we, we wouldn't just say 
Yeah, he's a pretty good teacher, he's a pretty good scholar, he's just not very bothered about truth or truthfulness. I mean, I think that, that would be kind of nonsense to, to say that somebody is a good teacher or a good scholar or a good researcher is, is saying something about how they value truthfulness within that practice. I'm not saying within their life as a whole, but within that practice it would be rather difficult to, uh, to claim to goodness if, if he didn't have that. My second one would be uh, mutuality of respect. Unless one respected others and other statements and other opinions as um, worthy of consideration and distinct and different from one's own, unless one came in with that, Again, it seems to me it would be rather difficult to claim um, uh, claim goodness in any of those in any of those sets of practices that we associate with academia. And um, I'll make the same point about um, in the paper, as you'll see, I make the same point about authenticity and what I'm calling magnanimity. I mean, those are my four big values. Um, um, Truthfulness as quest, mutuality of respect, authenticity as a way of life, magnanimity and reaching out. But I do want to reiterate that I'm not saying that these are just sort of adjuncts, things that it might be nice, it'll, nice to have on the side. To beco becoming an academic, it seems to me, is to be on a journey where we understand what it is to be truthful, what it is to be respectful, what it is to be authentic, and what it is to be magnanimous within the context of those, of those practices. Um, <coughs> in, in my paper, I've, um, um, I've referenced each of those points more fully, which I won't go into uh, all of them at all, but I just do want to highlight one quote from Charles Taylor, the philosopher. Um, it was in his 1991 lectures... Um, sort of American equivalent of our reflectors, I think, if I remember, but I've just forgotten the name of them. And they were written up as in, a, in, a, in his book called Ethics of Authenticity. But I just think this is lovely. Uh, authenticity is one of those tricky terms again, isn't it? It just seems to me, Charles Tellis has something really important about them here. Um, the agent seeking significance in life, trying to define him or her herself meaningfully, has to exist in a horizon of important questions. Otherwise put, I can define my identity only against the background of things that matter. Only if I exist in a world in which history, all the demands of nature, all the needs of my fellow human beings, all the duties of citizenship, all the call of God or something else matters crucially. And I define an identity for myself that is not trivial. I think that's just a wonderful statement about authenticity. Um, so, that gives you my view of, of where I think we are sort of socio-culturally in terms of public discourse. I've I've argued that institutions generally have a vital role to play here 
against what I defined as populism, or what I sketched out as populism, and that practitioners are the ones that make institutions work. Institutions are civic associations. They depend vitally and crucially upon the associations uh, uh, which constitute them. Um, and finally, therefore, I just I will just I just read the final um, um, read the final bit where where I'd like us to finish up. Really, universities face a hard choice between two sharply contrasting visions of society and the place of higher education within it. The first is a society that lacks cohesion and is economically sluggish and politically disengaged. It relies on subjects who know their place in a society and are punctilious in the protection of their own private interests. It focuses on the past and views inequality as inevitable. At the bottom of this society are millions of young people alienated and without hope and a higher education system that reproduces this inequality and alienation. The second vision is of a society that embraces difference and is economically resilient and democratically purposeful. It requires citizens who demand their place within the polity. This alternative society focuses on alternative futures and it looks to a higher education system that challenges that legacy of inequality and in doing so provides hope, social mobility and a renewed sense of civic engagement. Thanks very much.